Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you in-depth interviews with the creators and stars of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, in London, and around the country. I'm your host, Variety's theater editor, Gordon Cox. In 1988, the play M. Butterfly became a Broadway sensation, starring John Lithgow and a then-unknown B.D. Wong, and winning three Tony Awards, including one for Best Play. The story of a French diplomat who falls in love with a Chinese opera singer who, spoiler alert, turns out to be a spy and a man, the play was groundbreaking in the late 80s. Now, 30 years later, Wong and Julie Taymor, the director behind the Broadway smash The Lion King, have returned to M. Butterfly. Their new production, with a freshly revised script and a cast led by Clive Owen and newcomer Jin Ha, opened in October. Both the writer and the director are here in the studio with me to tell us all about it. Julie and David, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, David, I think a lot of people who know the original play will walk out of this new production surprised at how different your new script is. What was it that prope- propelled you to go back and dig in and really relook at it? I mean, in, I guess in retrospect, I'm realizing that I wasn't in a hurry to have the play revived because um, I passed on some other opportunities. And um, many of the shows that were successful in the 80s have already been revived by now. So... Um, 
when Neil Nugent, um, the producer, came to us and um, asked about acquiring the rights, and very early in the conversation uh, brought up um, Julie as the possibility for a director, um, that began, that, that really excited me because I felt like, oh, this is somebody who's willing to kind of take a chance to relook at the, uh, at the, at the show to um, try to present it in, in a big way. And then when I started to talk to Julie, um, she, um, even more so than wanting to create a new production, pers- uh, just a new production, um, she also was very interested in some aspects and some new aspects of the story, um, stuff that had come out about the actual case since the original production. And this is, we should point out that this information had all come to light because of the success of the initial production. It was a story that right. became so, sort of well-known. Yeah, so uh, when I read this play about a French diplomat who had a very complicated and mysterious relationship with a <laughs> Chinese opera singer, um, there was only kind of one column about it on page 27 of the New York Times. And um, this was pre-internet, so there wasn't any way for me to really research it. So I kind of made everything up, which, you know, worked out in its own (laughs) way. But um, as a result of the success of the play, there's been, there was a lot more attention to um, the the real principles. And Barbara Walter went to Paris and interviewed them so that a lot of that information came out as a result of the success of the show. Yeah. And Julie, it sounds like it was important to you to kind of go back and work that stuff in. Why, Why was that? Well, I think, and David seemed to agree that what was, um, there were many things that made it successful 30 years ago, the writing, this, but also the surprise. And the surprise back then, and the whole, and also plays that dealt with homosexuality, the issues of gender, those were very, he was at the forefront of this. And also was the first Asian American to be on Broadway and also to have a play that recognized. So the issues that David was bringing up politically were all new. 30 years later, a lot of those issues are exactly the same and even more so, which is what's so surprising. But America is not in the same position. America is not on top. And I think that what interested me was the possibility of going into the individual characters of Song Liling and um, Gallimard, the French diplomat, and really talking about their specific relationship as a love story, that the betrayal is not the betrayal of the betrayal 30 years ago. Song didn't start out to be a spy in this version. We don't get, David doesn't get specific on exactly when he's approached to become a spy, but what I'm, what I love so much about this is the love and the fact that this is such an incredibly, um, personal, individual, specific love story that defies the gender issues and the binary, are you gay, are you not gay, are you male, female, that it goes beyond that. And the reason it's such an incredibly moving story is because both France or the West at the time and China at the time were two parts of the world, opposite parts that would not allow this love story to exist, that these two people Ultimately, David's written one of the most romantic love stories that I've ever seen. They're attracted to each other's romance, romance. Song loves the opera, the old world of China, the chi paos, the beauty, the delicacy, the 
Song as an opera singer loves Puccini, even though Song may say it's all bullshit. Song still loves the music, loves the romance, and sees in Gallimard a person that Song can. I'm having a hard time with the he she's, but Song sure. can relate to. And the exact same, on the other hand, of of um, Gallimard, who like the original person is an ultra romantic, and David's planted that very early in all the flashbacks. Uh, and so the mystery of China and going down the side streets and coming to the opera and all of these things which we filled in more on this one, I think will allow people... You mentioned actually, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you mentioned that that opera, there's a scene in which he attends the, the opera for the first time in Beijing and that opera is, what that opera is, which is called The Butterfly Lovers, is taken from the real story, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So much of what David's done in putting into his own words or we put it into our own dance moves and music is from this new information that came out subsequent to the original play. And it was so ironic that he had the opera, the Puccini opera, uh, Madame Butterfly, but the real story actually was very close to Butterfly Lovers, which is like a Shakespeare play with, where the young woman disguises herself as a man to go study and falls in love as a man with another young scholar and the heartbreak. And so this, there's something so was so astounding to me when I went back that I went, all right, David, if you're willing to open up, you know, this work that could be called a modern classic, uh, I will go there with you um, because I'm interested in all of this, but it will not just be a revival. So what's hard for some people who saw it, you know, I just, somebody just said, oh, it's not a surprise at the end. No, it's not a surprise at the end. It's not supposed to be a surprise at the end. You don't, you know, right at the beginning, at the very beginning. And if you, if you didn't notice, then you're like Gallimar and you went with the flow. And that's the beauty. Some people, some people know right away that song is a man. Some people don't know till the very end. Some people figure it out somewhere. But ultimately, that's not even the point. So I love that. Which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, David, but that seems like it plays, it's a very different, the last time we talked, you mentioned that it was uh, more of a kind of crying game reveal in the original production. And this was, what, five years before the crying game ha happened. Right. So, um, yeah, in the original production, a lot of the impact of the show, the shock of the show, turned on the gender reveal. And in that respect, uh, was similar to, to the, um, what would happen later with the crying game. Um, and I, I think that it, I began to realize as we talked about the material and that, you know, some part of me really understood this intuitively that this, uh, that this particular surprise wouldn't be as shocking, um, 30 years later. Because of where we are right now in our discussion uh, about uh, yes, gender because it's, identity. It's, and... Yeah, because we, under, you know, we, we are, un, we understand and we are exposed to many different gender expressions, uh, today. And so... Um, what was great about this was the opportunity. I think Julie and I were really good partners on this because she uh, she would pull towards the love story and making the, that more nuanced and making the characters more real. And I would pull towards the more kind of Brechtian political, you know, well, we have to preserve all of the, the ideology, ideological stuff, which I think is still uh, ends up being still very relevant today. Um, and, of course, you need both. 
Yeah. And that's why I think we ended up being a good partnership on this. And it's my understanding that you worked together for about a year on the script before yes. you started. Yeah. And how, how, what was that like? Was that, uh, what was the sort of day-to-day of that process? Was that, uh, well, you know, David day-to-day. writing? Day. Yeah. It's I'm, you know, I did a lot of research. He knew the research, but I would pick out the things that were particularly meaningful and things that I thought we could do in the theater. And David wrote a film script as I like to say, because there's 27 or 37 <laughs> scene changes. And I wanted to see if I could do that fluidly on stage. So I always in- didn't ever stop him from, I mean, most, I think most directors would have said, no, we can't do two peking operas and da 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 and da da da. But I never, <laughs> I never stopped him because I thought, well, I'm going to try. That'll be exciting. You know, I mean, putting a stampede is sort of, you know, it's not. Right. That's a, it's that's, sort of like, yeah, put a stampede on stage. Yeah, why not? Yeah, okay. it happened, it happened yeah. in the Lion King. It seems to work okay. It's yeah. possible. Yeah. But um, I think that I took a lot of notes and made suggestions, and then David would write, and then we'd go back and forth on that. And uh, I was sort of a dramaturg in that sense. Okay. I was a director dramaturg and hopefully inspiring, occasionally mm-hmm. a line here or there that he would sort of pick at um, or use. But it was, it was always a very exciting a very exciting collaboration. The play existed. It was, it, there were things that I felt were dated, and he would agree, you know, in characters and words that just didn't, 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 wouldn't have worked exactly the same. That worked so well there. Humor, humor is very hard sometimes because humor has sometimes is very time specific, place specific. So words, ideas, or humor that, that some of it's still there and still the same places work, but some of them didn't. Julia, you have a reputation for being a very visual director, which you are, but you base your, all your ideas kind of spring from the text, as I understand it. Absolutely. Tell me, you can't do Shakespeare and not be in love with text. Yeah, t- just, I mean, tell me about how I, you work with text and how that inspires then how you put it on stage. Well, it just depends on what the play or the movie or the opera is, but it all starts from the story and from the. Uh, it's not necessarily from the text. It could be from the story, and the story will then inform what is the kind of imagery. I, I, the one of the ways that I work in in all. Uh, my direction and design is to find an ideograph. And an ideograph is the boiling down of the piece or the, um, I don't know, the easiest way for me to always explain an ideograph is to say it's like when the Japanese do the short brush paintings, they'll do an entire forest in three brush strokes. So I do this with character, with with um, design, with costume and mask, with sets, and concepts. So when I thought about David's play, I know that this might be a cliche for it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm wondering if it is, but the Chinese puzzle box, whether people get sick of that word or not, is a real thing. And it's a beautiful concept. And when I was trying to figure out what would the design be for something that's got 27, 37 scene changes, it, and you want to start in a cell. This is where Eiko Ishioka's beautiful set I, I don't think I this ever This is in the really, original production. Yeah, I didn't this. really feel that we were in a place where a man was isolated in a cell with walls, with no windows, you know, just being there every night trying to figure out what the fuck, excuse me, but how did he get to where he is? And and so my intent was to start from that, and you've seen it, so you know right. that we have these walls, these metal walls, and it's a corner. You know, obviously it'd be nice to be four, but it's a corner, which is no way out. And it goes from that, and it opens up like his brain fracturing. And he wrote, 
And these were these were some of our real discussions. Is this a flashback? Is it a projection? Is this a real place? We still argue, are, is Mark real in Paris? Or is he still a, a, a figment of the imagination? It, he wrote flashbacks, dreams, projections, and he wasn't and very meta. clear about it, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so I had to work with, with Paul Steinberg, the designer, in creating something that could keep coming back to this cell. So you're always aware that these walls, it's kind of, minimalist and maximalist. It really is both. Sometimes there's nothing there at all but a metal space. When you sort of see the totality of it, it it opens up into this incredible Asian imagery when he really remembers the first time he met Song. So you follow the text. You don't just do the image because, oh, I'd love to do beautiful bamboo forest. No, you don't. You say, what is the moment where this thing now takes you in a lush way back to in his memory? And those places are the Peking Opera, you know. They're they're they're, and then it, they eventually get to be songs, memories, which are very hard for Gallimard to even stay and look at. But finally, in this version, they're fleshed out for him, which makes the story in a new place by the time he's telling it to this audience. Right, right, and there's it's a series of like great big panels that That's are, right. um, yeah. and it's entirely free of automation, which I know is important to you. Why is that? Well. You know, I've done I've done all kinds of stuff, but even when I did Lion King, knowing I was moving from an animated film to theater, I made a um, uh, a contract with myself that you would do what theater does best, and what theater does best is the poetry of seeing the strings and the rods and seeing the mechanics. When you start getting too automated, you start to become less human. And I do think the poetry of theater is its humanity, is that you see people make mistakes. It's like circus. You see them. I'm not happy when the screens don't meet exactly, but on the other, or I see the little hands moving. On the other hand, I've gotten such extraordinary response from people of how moving that is for them because it's not a machine doing it. And it means that you can reset in 10 seconds because since you do computerize, and I've been through it, believe me, <laughs> you cannot reset, get back, and re-rehearse. On the other hand, it's always going to be a little different. Um, and I thought, I don't, I'm sick of the use of projections, and I've used them a lot myself, but I, I don't use them to say, okay, let's do the Peking streets, you know, the streets of Beijing. You know, I'm not going to show that, or here is now real sunrise or snow falling, or the way that people seem to use it instead of using a stylized version of the uh, landscape or the place so what, what you have here is wallpaper. I know this sounds funny, but there's a point. There, the minimalist aspect of Paul's design is wallpaper, literally, on those giant 6-by-12-foot screens. Because if all you have in Agnes, the wife's apartment, is maybe a chair and wallpaper, everything about that wallpaper tells you about their relationship. That's the ideograph. What's the color? Oh, it's that kind of pinky, peachy, beigey. <laughs> Parisian, and then the floral, you know, you have it. The only scene that is fully fleshed out is Song's apartment. Why? Because that's where his world has been recreated. So you have detail. You have you have chaise lounges with lacquered furniture that's all carved and intricate. It's the only one that, and we go back there enough times to warrant it. But to me, the what whenever you make a choice about scenery, mean, meaning where is the scene taking place, it has to be about what is the essence of that experience for the character? Why are we there? What is, you know, yeah. and, and so these giant Russian constructivist Chinese posters, 
when we found those in research, what that's unbelievable. That says it all. You don't need to be any more than having those posters to be in the interrogation scene for, for song. Right, right. And David, as, as this vision was sort of shaping up for, and you started to become clear how the, how the play would make it onto the stage, how did that influence your work as a writer? Or was there anything in the vision that maybe perhaps surprised you? Um, you know, I, I sort of famously say that I'm not particularly visual, um, that I, Julie agrees with me, and um, <laughs> I have, you know, I have bad eyes but good ears. Um, and so I never know what my shows are going to look like. And I didn't, the, the, the original unit set that John Dexter did with Eiko Ishioka, I had no idea that that was going to, and I can't take credit for any of that, and I can't, can't take credit for any of this. And um, the... You know, it was hard to kind of simulate how the how the panels are going to work in the rehearsal room. So I feel like I didn't get to kind of understand uh, it and really what it was going to all look like until we got into tech and like first preview kind of. Um, so and what struck you about it when you saw it? Well, it it's it's so magical, you know, and it it's theatrical and it's simple in a way and yet so intricate um and that felt really right for the show but i don't you know it's not anything i I don't think i wrote to that i think julie tried to find a way to bring to the stage what it is that i had written Mm -hmm. i see um and the original production of course featured two memorable lead performances from john lithgow and bd wong and uh for this production you've got clive owen and uh relative newcomer, Jin Ha. How did you find Clive to get on board the project? Well, I think we all go through the list. You know, mm-hmm. we go through the list, and, and I think that David and I got, and Nell got very excited about the idea of Clive. I've never seen him on stage, but apparently he was very good two years ago in a pincher play. Yeah, in a pincher play at the roundabout. Yeah, it was uh, old times, I think. Mm-hmm. Old times, yeah. But I've loved him as a as a film actor. And, and I I think at first you think... And maybe some people will still think that he's so dashing that how could he? But that is such a silly thing. And when I think about that and I think about what's his name who killed all those women, that good looking guy, you know, Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever. Oh, gosh. No, no. The reason I say that is because (laughs) it's so dumb for people. I think it's so dumb for people to think just because they think he's handsome or has played those roles that he wouldn't be ineffectual with women. Anyway, that's not what the play's about, is it? It's not that he's ineffectual woman. He's looking for the perfect woman. The perfect woman is not women. It's not that thing. So I think that that Clive, you you did take out, David did take out a few things that talked about him being Being unattractive. unattractive. Because that just really wasn't going to happen. That wasn't going to happen. (laughs) But, But I think that Clive, being such a great physical actor, is... Uh, looking mm-hmm. he's he, he his ma- he body makes himself, yeah, he makes he himself, makes himself with his scenes. little pot belly pushing it out and <laughs> and his back turning you know curving his body he's got a very nervous habit with his hands um he really and he and he does florid things at times sometimes i thought too much and we talked about it but he he has he he loves this character and what he loves remember he kept talking about the real guy and wanting to wear these fur coats and things he loves the romance of this character he loves the imagination and romance of Gallimar and we met him a year ago we were supposed to open last spring and uh, we were ready to do it but Clive said I need more time so if you're willing to postpone it I won't have to go right from a movie and I can really 
get deep into the character. And then we were very lucky to have him available to do a full-out workshop in the spring. So we had all the actors who were in the Broadway show. Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask, was that, it was the whole cast? The whole that, cast, right. Jinha, everybody, which allowed David, and I really wanted him to have the, that time unfettered, uh, not with sets and not with anything, where we could spend four or five days just reading it. He'd go home, write, come in, try things out, get a feeling of what the actors are feeling. And, and that was spectacular. And Clive met with us a couple of times during the year um, and was a real always supportive and just investigating um, this part. Yeah, he's so devoted and such a hard worker, so not only did he, you know, he, he wanted to do the 29-hour, the, the four-day workshop. He Every time he came into town, we would, like, be in Julie's kitchen sitting around the table talking about the text. And, right. you know, right. And uh, Jin won't be familiar to Broadway audiences, but he, uh, I, it's my understanding that when he got the role, he was playing King George in Hamilton. He was playing. In Chicago. Yeah, he was yeah. He was in the ensemble covering. Oh, he was covering, King George, yeah. And Hamilton, he was the first not, oh. Wow. And Burr, and he played all three. Wow. He closed his last night, apparently. They let him play Hamilton, and we heard good reports. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of, you know. How did you find him? Was that just through auditions or? Yeah. Yeah. It was through, we, we auditioned people from all over, from Asia, Korea. I was in Korea and auditioned, and people would send in videotapes from Philippines, China, and, and then I went to L.A. So we had a lot of people. This is the harder role, really. I mean, it's the hardest role to, to, to be able to be a, a quadruple threat. Did you think about casting a gender nonconforming actor at all? Was that ever a uh, we uh, we did audition. audition some gender nonconforming actors, so that was definitely uh, uh, a possibility for us. We also auditioned a woman. Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And what was it about Jin that uh, grabbed you? Um, you know, it's just hard to find somebody who the the role is so demanding in terms of being able to act. You have to sing. You have to sing Western opera. You have to sing Chinese opera. You have to be able to dance. You have to, you know, you have to look good. Yeah, right. <laughs> Naked and, 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 and in a dress. Yes. <laughs> so you know, those the requirements are are pretty intense, and um, I think there's a combination of Jin being able to kind of fulfill all that in, in beautifully and also i think um D D clive saw his audition too right and he saw a tape yeah, yeah and and felt very comfortable working with him um and you know i think for me it's just a it's it just goes to prove that you create these roles for actors of color and they're impossible to cast and you find somebody because if you create the opportunity you will find the person right I feel I cannot have you both in the studio without Julie mentioning that you were about to celebrate a landmark for The Lion King, mm -hmm. 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, how how has that changed your life? Oh, first of all, it's the most joyous experience to go around the world and put this play on in languages. And the last one I did was in Mandarin. Right. So I was in Shanghai. It's, it's true. We should point out to listeners that... It, just because it opened on Broadway 20 years ago doesn't mean that you haven't had any involvement in oh my God. other productions and all of the, you know, just the life of the I just cast property. a full South African company to tour all Asia recently, oh, and I'm going to go to the Philippines where we're, we're opening. I usually show up at auditions on these worldwide uh, productions, and then I'll come in for the last week of rehearsal, which is once they've learned all the blocking and the songs and you know, have that, I can do the most work, and, and the actors are really open. In China, though, I was very involved in, in the translation and worked with um, um, 
you know, oh, Stan Lee. Yeah, Stan Lee's company mm-hmm. came in a wonderful who's writer. A, who's a, yeah, probably the most beloved playwright director in China right now. Mm. Yeah, mm. and so his he came in and helped us because I really wanted to make sure the translate. I mean, I don't speak Mandarin, so right. we had the company come and read it. We did huge all afternoon talking about humor and what 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 dialect and where they should come from, and because humor is the tricky thing, it just doesn't. You right. can't just have Borscht Belt humor show up in in Shanghai. And or inner city black dialects work, so you have to find what's the equivalent everywhere you go, whether you think that's politically correct or not. I particularly love dialects. David, we talked a little bit about this before we turned the mics on, but you're working on a new musical. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm working on a show with Janine Tesori, um, which called Soft Power, which is an idea that I had, which is essentially a play that becomes a musical. So for the first 25 minutes of the play, then it jumps 50 years in the future and becomes a musical. And we will be opening... And what's it about? Um, It's basically a... uh, We see something in the present, and then we see how it becomes a musical in China 50 years down the road, which is about 2016 in America. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> and Julie, what's on your plate coming up next? Well, it was announced today mm-hmm. that um, I'm I'm going to be doing a film of Gloria Steinem's book, My Life on the Road. Yep. Sarah Rule, the playwright, is going to write the screenplay, and yeah, Julianne Moore is yep. sort of the major Gloria. There will be others, including Gloria herself. Oh, great! But it's not a biopic; it's a road picture, and right. that's really different. So, and did you enlist Sarah? How did Sarah get yes, involved? Sarah Rule, I enlisted the Sarah. Here. Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like I like her combination of being able to do real characters, but also surreality. And when you're doing something that is basically grounded, you know that it feels like oh, you're going to be at real places at real times. Nah, not not all the time, not so totally. So you have to be able to write these characters, but also with me, there's going to be a structure that's a little bit out there. Great. Lord. Can't wait to see it. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you both. Thanks Thank for you. being here. Nice to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. That was Julie Taymor and David Henry Wong talking about their new production of M. Butterfly. On the next episode of Stagecraft, I'll talk to John Leguizamo, whose latest autobiographical solo show, Latin History for Morons, is now on Broadway. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.